Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of 1 John. Uh, we're going to try to finish 1 John today, but as you will see halfway through the lesson, sometimes God's will is different than ours. Uh, here we are last Sunday. Uh, for some reason, they stuck us up there and gave us all the babies. Um, I could tell you who they all were, but I'd have to think about it. We were in Colorado. Uh, last Sunday, we were actually in Fair Play, Colorado, and we went into downtown Fair Play for the borough races, except for the fact that um, uh, they shut the highway down for an hour because of the borough races. So we sat on the highway in our car watching the burrows go by. Now, you don't ride the burrow, you run next to the burrow, and the burrows sometimes don't want to run. They don't want to go anywhere. Uh, the alternate name of the race was get your ass to the pass. <laughs> but we won't say that one. Um, here's the whole clan. Anybody know where that picture is? No. I, I actually included that picture for a reason. The uh, last verse in 1 John is about idolatry, and there's just something about that statue that... That's the troll in Breckenridge. So, anyway. We have worked our way through 1 John. Uh, in case you're wondering... Then we're going to do 2 John, which should take a lesson. And then we're going to do 3 John, which should take a lesson. And then we'll go on to something else to be determined. You can suggest things as long as it's not, you know, right? Marriage, raising children, or the book of Revelation. I don't teach any of those because I don't know anything about any of them. Last week, we were in Colorado, the entire family... There were 23 of us living under one roof, and when we left Colorado on Monday morning, it was 42 degrees. And uh, by the time we got into Texas, it was 103. So we had a good time. John has been talking to us about knowing certain things about Christ, about our salvation, about what it means to be a believer. And he's going to end with that discussion. But that doesn't get until, I don't know, about verse uh, 18 or so. So we have a little ways to go before we get to his conclusion of the book. We're going to pick it up in verse, um, I don't know, 6. This is he who came. We're going to talk about Jesus Remember, John has been talking about Jesus nonstop. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For, these, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree." If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. What in the world does that mean? 
According to Jewish law, if you're going to convict someone, you have to have two witnesses or three. I can't just accuse somebody of something and expect a, Jew, a Jewish jury trial to convict the person. I need more testimony. So John has been talking about what he has seen. He and the other apostles saw Jesus. They saw Jesus do his mighty works. They saw the resurrected Jesus. But he's going to conclude with three testimonies. Blood, no, water, blood, and the Spirit. Now, to our thinking, this is kind of weird. What do we mean by the water? Well, there is some discussion about what this means, but the general consensus is we're talking about Jesus' baptism, where he went into the water, he came out of the water, and you remember what happened, right? God said, this is my beloved son. That's kind of a stamp from God saying, listen to this guy. The water. The blood. That is his crucifixion. Not just his crucifixion, but his providing for our salvation through his blood. And I might add, he didn't just die, he was resurrected to demonstrate, to bear testimony to the fact that he was sent from God. And the third, which John has talked about elsewhere in this book, is the Spirit himself testifying. And John says, we human beings can give testimony, but if God gives a testimony, we should pay attention to that. Now, it is interesting that we do the baptism and we do the crucifixion. Because if you remember... John has had some discussion about false teachers. And these false teachers are those who somehow are denying the death of Jesus. Now, some commentators, and I probably agree with this, would say that this is Gnosticism. Now, other commentators point out the fact that Gnosticism did not become a major heresy for a little while after this. And that's true but I would contend that it was there from the very beginning. Gnosticism says that the flesh, the material world, is in and of itself evil. So Jesus, being God, obviously didn't have any real flesh. Therefore, obviously, he couldn't die. That's why John has said repeatedly, this is the confession that we have to make, that Jesus came from God as a human, and he died because they were denying that. So we have the baptism, we have the blood, both demonstrating God's endorsement of what Jesus was doing, while at the same time demonstrating Jesus' humanity. He was, in fact, human and was killed on the cross. And then the Spirit is bearing testimony. So we have these three bearing testimony. So what? Let's keep going. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. 
What is that testimony? There's the blood, the water, the blood, and the spirit living in us. That is the testimony that we have that Jesus was, in fact, who he says he was. Whoever does not believe God has made him, God, a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony. This is the truth that we have to know, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's two choices, option A, option B. There is no option C. Now, in our modern world, we hate this idea. We hate this idea that there's only two options. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. And there are those of a more tolerant nature who say that just doesn't sound right. What about the sincere fill-in-your-blank, right? Your sincere person of some other religious organization, some other philosophical belief, just some other good person. Why can't we accept the fact that all roads lead to heaven? Well, we have in this passage God, through the Apostle John, telling us that God is testifying that there's only two answers. And if you reject this, you are making God out to be a liar. You are looking at God and saying, God, I don't think you really understand the way the real world works. Now, my answer to the question of why don't we just believe all the different paths get you to heaven, I'm amazed that there is any path to heaven. I mean, let's look at this, okay? If, in fact, God created us and said we were very good, and then we rebelled against God, which we did, and if we in our daily life demonstrate this rebellion by refusing to do what God would have us to do, why doesn't God just zap us? I mean, he is perfectly within his right as a holy God to just be done with us. The fact that God has provided a salvation for us is the miracle of the whole thing. Why? For God so loved us that he provided a way. So if God provides a way, which is a huge amount of grace and mercy on his part, who are we to say, why didn't you give us 10 ways? 20, 30, who are we to say, no, God, I think you've got it wrong. Well, who we are are those who sit here and think God doesn't know what he's doing. Therefore, we think God is lying to us. There's only one way to heaven, and that is, here's the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life 
is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's really simple in John's understanding of the gospel. There is a path, but there's a path. There's not a dozen paths that get us there. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We started our discussion of 1 John by pointing out that he uses the word know 30 or 40 times, and he's going to use it about eight times in the rest of this passage. He wants you to know something. And right now, in this passage, he wants you to know that you have eternal life. Now, there's a problem with this verse, and there's a problem with me teaching this verse. And he's actually going to deal with it in just a moment. I would love to be able to stand up here and say, every one of you sitting in this room ought to know that you have eternal life. And you ought to know that you have eternal life. But what's the problem with that? Some of you might not have eternal life. And I don't want to give you a false assurance that you have eternal life when you really don't. Yet at the same time, John is telling us that he wants us to know. He wants us to know. And so what we're going to talk about here for just a second is how you might not know. How you might ought not to know. I'm not even sure that's a sentence. But first he throws in this discussion about prayer. So I'll let Ben come up and teach. No, we won't do that. <laughs> Notice the sequence. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He is writing this to believers so that they will know that they have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We've talked about this several times. The implication is, I, being in Christ, ask for anything and God will give it to me. Isn't that what that just said? Well, sort of. If you believe that God is a vending machine, you put in your quarter and you push item A5 and whatever is in item A5 of the vending machine is given to you, you have an improper understanding of God. Let's just say it, right? If you believe that in, you believe in some prosperity gospel that you give your 10 bucks to God and God will return it a hundredfold. So if my math is right, that's a thousand bucks. 
I talked with one, a guy one time. I'm not even sure he was a believer, but he had listened to the prosperity gospel preacher on TV, and he sent him 100 bucks, and he was waiting for his 10 grand to show up. I'm not sure it ever did. If that's what you believe about God, you are mistaken. Well, it says, if we ask, he's going to give it to us. So, I'm going to go home today and pray, God, I'm going to rob the bank tomorrow. Please help it be successful. (laughs) How many of you think God is going to answer that prayer? Not many, right? Why? Because it's clearly outside the revealed will of God. Okay? While I don't think there's a verse that says don't rob the bank, I think there are some verses that apply very clearly to that. Don't do that. But what if I pray for someone's healing who really does need to be healed? And we know that God heals people. We know that he does that. Why doesn't he respond? We have a lot of difficulty with, if we ask, according to his will. Because either we take this passage to mean I can ask for anything, he's a vending machine, and he'll give it to us, Or we say, whatever's going to happen is according to his will, so why bother asking? And we take either one of those, and we've gone the wrong direction. What is the will of God? That you have a relationship with God. What is the purpose of prayer? For you to have a relationship with God. What does that mean? It means that sometimes God is going to say, sure, here it is. And sometimes God's going to say, I have a plan for your life. Trust me. And you know what? We don't want to do that. We don't. And sometimes God's going to say, that's a stupid thing to ask for. He may not use those words. We told our kids not to use the word stupid, but, you know, sometimes we're just stupid. We see our desires as being the most prominent, important things in our life. And God wants us to see That it's not our desires, but our relationship with him that is most important. So we pray. We pray, and God answers. But more important than that, we develop the relationship with God. And we begin to understand God's will and our will begins to conform to his will instead of trying to take God's will and force it into our puny understanding of how things ought to be. That's the difference. And we develop 
that relationship. And as we develop that relationship, eventually, maybe, hopefully, we get to the point where Jesus was when he says, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus made it very clear. You remember this in Mark, right? I don't want to die. I certainly don't want to go through the rejection by accepting the sins of the world. But, not my will, but your will be done. And that's where God wants to get us. Now you go, then what's the point of praying? Because that's how the relationship is developed. We pray, God says yes. We pray, God says, not right now. We pray, and God says, that'd be really bad if I gave that to you. I mean, when your children were young, or your grandchildren, or your great-grandchildren, did they ever ask you for something that you knew would be a really bad idea to give it to them? Dad, can I play with the chainsaw? No. (laughs) But Dad, I want to. I have found it fascinating. I went through a lot of kids, okay? But I'm starting it all over again with grandkids. But I want this. But we're not doing it. But I want it. But we're not doing that. But I want it. As if that's the answer. My, anyway, we're getting distracted. John is writing this so that you will know that you have eternal life. And because you know that you have eternal life, you know that you have a relationship with God, therefore you can pray according to God's will and he'll communicate with you. But remember the concern that I had. What if you're not really a believer? I would love to be able to tell you that everyone who attends Christ Chapel on any given Sunday is a follower of Christ. But you know that's not true, right? We have lots of people who come to church for a lot of different reasons. Okay, They come because family members want them to come. They come because they like the music. They like the people. They like, they like a lot of things, right? And this is true in every church that ever existed. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's start with the easy part of this, okay? If anyone sees his brother committing sin, he shall ask and God will give him life. Yes, I left out the middle phrase of that verse. I said I'm starting with the easy stuff, right? How many of you, don't raise your hand, have ever seen a fellow Christian sin? 
Okay? If you think the answer is no, go home and stare at a mirror for a while. Not too long, it'll aggravate you. Or ask your spouse, they'll answer for you. We have this strange idea, and that strange idea is, I'm not going to tell you about your sins if you promise not to tell me about mine. And we've got an agreement here, right? Why do we believe that? Because we don't think sin's that important. We just don't, okay? Yeah, I sinned, but, you know, God's grace, greater than that, great, life's good. On we go. We also live in a very individualistic age. You're an individual. I'm an individual. We're all individuals. You do your thing. I do my thing. You don't tell me what to do. I don't tell you what to do. Life is good. John would have no understanding of that. We are a community of believers. And when one sins, the rest of us are to pray for them that they would be restored. We are to pray with them, and we are to confront to talk to them about it. We are to acknowledge that sin causes problems. Now, he's got this strange phrase in here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. What is a sin that leads to death? Uh, Getting drunk and driving down the highway would be a start, but I don't think that's what he's talking about right here. One way of looking at this passage is that there are certain sins that you could commit that would cause you to lose your salvation. If you're a good Roman Catholic, they have venial sins, you know, the everyday run of your mill, you do that sin, you go to confession, say your Hail Marys, and you're good. And then they have mortal sins. A mortal sin causes you to fall from a state of grace that you entered when you were baptism. You lost your salvation. And there are lots of Protestant denominations who believe you can commit some sin that causes you to lose your salvation. Well, we don't believe that. And I don't believe that. We believe that if, in fact, you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... You have, not future tense, but you have at that point in time, eternal life. But we also know and fully accept and acknowledge that there are lots of people who, in the Baptist church that I grew up in, walked down the aisle after the service, shook the pastor's hand, said, yes, I've become a believer. They were dunked that evening in the service, and guess what? They were never really saved. We accept that. We know that to be the case. The scripture tells us 
that's the case. The scripture tells us that at the final judgment, there are going to be people who said, we did all these great things for you, God. Yes, but you never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. We know that. There is lots of discussion about what is the unpardonable sin. And I've actually talked to people who are worried they had committed it, whatever it is. Let me tell you what the unpardonable sin is. If you die rejecting Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, there is no plan B. Didn't we talk about that a while ago? That's the unpardonable sin. That is the sin that says, I'm going to do it my way. I listened to a commencement address this week by a uh, Catholic professor, and he was talking about 10 myths in our world today. And he says, everyone walking into hell is singing the song, I did it my way. Okay? There are those within the community of believers who are committing sins that demonstrate that demonstrate that they are not truly part of Christ. You remember that discussion in Matthew about what to do with people in, not Matthew, someplace else, uh, how to deal with church discipline. Somebody commits an offense against you, and you go to them and talk to them about it. They reject you. So you take two Christian friends, not just people who are going to agree with you, good Christian friends, and you come together, and they reject. And the church finally says, enough is enough. And it says you remove them from the body of Christ. Now, you're not doing anything except trying to encourage them to come back. But you're acknowledging the fact that their open, unconfessed, unrepentant sin is demonstrating that they're not part of the body. I mean, this is the weird thing that the Scripture tells us. We want to judge all those outside the church. Huh, they're going to do what people outside the church do. We are told to deal with the people inside the church. If you see anybody falls into sin, you help them. That's what we're supposed to do. But at some point, we as a church body say, that doesn't look like it's in conformance to the will of God. And ultimately, ultimately, if they have not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that is a sin that leads to death. Now, I think this phrase is interesting because it's so weak. You ready for this? I do not say that one should pray for that, for them. Do you see the passive nature of this? He's not telling you you can't. And guess what? There's some of them you're going to pray for. He's not commanding you to pray for them. And this is a subject that bothers us, but the scripture tells it to us. 
You know, Jesus told his disciples, you go out, you preach the gospel. If somebody rejects you, you brush the dust off, you kick the dust off your sandals, and you go to the next village. In the Sermon on the Mount, it says, don't cast your pearls before swine. There comes a point where you continuing to share the gospel is being counterproductive. And at some point, you just say, I can't do it anymore. Now, when it's your child, your friend, you're going to pray for them. And you know what? You keep praying for them. He isn't telling you you can't. All he's saying is he's not commanding you to pray for them. Do you see the difference? But in case you get into your mind that, oh, there are sins that lead to death, the bad stuff, and there's all the other stuff and it's not that important, he throws in the phrase, all wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing is sin. Every wrong thing, thought, action, deed that you've ever done is what nailed Jesus to the cross. It's all important. So don't think that, oh, as long as I'm not doing that. I've told you the story in here before because I just think it's a hoot. You know, you've talked to people about sin and they tell you. What do they say? Well, I've never killed anybody. As if that's the standard. And I kid you not, I was listening to the radio one day, and they were interviewing a guy in prison, and he said, at least I haven't killed a large group of people before. Let's just change the standard to whatever we want, right? No. All sin is rebellion against God. Go back to the first chapter of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. If we say we have no sin, we're making God out to be a liar. Okay. And here's the conclusion of the whole book. A series of statements that begin, we know. These are the things that we know. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We've had this discussion. I said this is the conclusion, so it's a repeat of what he's talked about before. We had a long discussion about this. First, it says, if we say we have no sin, we're making God a liar. And then it tells us, don't sin. Is that a contradiction? No. It's the acknowledgement of the fact that we as believers are to not sin. And we in our fallen nature will continue to sin. We sin, we confess our sins, he forgives us our sins, and we move on. Now, what if you fall into the sin and you don't want to confess it? What if you just like it? What if you just love having that anger against someone? What if you just love that relationship that you're not supposed to be involved in? What if you just love coveting your neighbor's stuff? What if, what? Once again, I, 
I'm not John. John is an apostle. I am not going to sit here and judge anyone's salvation. But these things are red flags that warn us that maybe we are not where we think we ought to be. So the answer is, as believers, we should be progressing in our sanctification so that our sins are not gone, but they're not habitual. If we keep the same sin over and over and over, I've used the illustration before. You throw the cat into the mud, and the cat will get out and clean itself. You throw the pig into the mud, and he loves it. We as believers fall into the mud. But we're not supposed to like it. He who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's an interesting statement. The evil one obviously being Satan. Well, didn't the evil one touch a lot of people? Didn't he, well, like, get Jesus killed? Didn't he, like, get the apostles killed? Yeah. But guess what? God protected them. Stephen preached his sermon, was taken out and stoned to death. And as I've said in here numerous times, and I keep telling you, hoping that I convince myself, dying doesn't mean you lose. The fact that Stephen was stoned in no form or fashion touched Stephen's salvation. It didn't. God took Stephen from earth, where he was doing what God told him to do, to heaven to receive his reward. Stephen won. He did. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's just make sure you understand, if you don't, read the newspaper, that there is the world, and there is God, and we are from God, and these two are going to clash. Remember the passage a couple of chapters ago? Don't love the world or the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Don't love the world. Why? The world is... Well, the world is doing things its way. Don't be surprised that you and the world somehow are in conflict. That's normal. John had a little bit of trouble with the world. Jesus had a little bit of trouble with the world. Paul had a little bit of trouble. Peter had a little bit of trouble. Stephen, we just talked about. Why should we expect anything else. No. These are the things that we need to know. Don't be shocked. <gasps> There's somebody out there that doesn't follow God. Duh. Yeah. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's an interesting phrase. We know that God maintains control over everything in the universe. 
which is what makes him sovereign and what makes him, allows him to protect us. But he has also given Satan an authority over this world in which we live. The world works according to the wrong principles. That's why we're not supposed to love it. That's why we are supposed to reject it. That's why we are supposed to be different. John is telling them, don't be surprised. We know this to be true. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It is fascinating to me. What word did I keep emphasizing? Him who is true. Him who is true. He is the true God. Our world today has a problem with truth. Okay? We don't have a problem with it. It's just that you have your truth, I have my truth, and you live your truth, I'll live my truth, and we'll all live happily ever after. It's the most tolerant-sounding thing in the world. Woohoo! Why can't we get all get along? The problem with it is at some point, your truth is going to clash with my truth, and who's going to win? I can tell you who's going to go win. Just go read Nietzsche. The most powerful, strongest dude is going to win. If there is no truth, there's just your truth and my truth, all there is is, to quote Nietzsche, a will to power. That's all. We can't live. Your truth, my truth, particularly in a world that really has truth. That's why Francis Schaeffer uh, had to coin a phrase, and he would refer to true truth. No, he's not stuttering. He's simply saying that which is true, rather, regardless of whether you think it's true or not. Easy example. The law of gravity. Trust me, gravity is going to win. Now, I read a book one time that said gravity was just a mental construct. And if you can convince yourself that there is no... I'm not making this up. If you convinced yourself that there was no such thing as gravity, you'd float to the ceiling. But guess what? Gravity is going to win every time. What about getting in an airplane? Well, all you're doing is using the laws of physics to overcome gravity for a while. Every airplane that goes up is eventually going to come down 100% of the time. Why? Because it's true. In the same way, God has put us in a world and told us true truth. And that's what John has been trying to communicate to us in this entire book. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in human form to die for our sins, to provide salvation for us so that we would not be enslaved to sin and we, through Christ, could inherit eternal life. And that 
is the truth. And then there's the last sentence, which I just think is kind of funny, actually. After all of this, little children, he keeps talking to us as little children. Remember, he's the elder statesman. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. When my children leave the house anytime, what do I tell them? Don't run with scissors. I don't know why I tell them that. They're not supposed to run with scissors, right? Why does John conclude with stay away from idols? Well, we had the strange picture of the troll, right? Um, I don't know a lot of people bowing down and worshiping the troll of Breckenridge. Okay, maybe somebody does. I don't know. But we, left to our own devices, are going to worship something other than God. Or we're going to worship a God of our own creation. God is love. That's all he is. Guess what? That's idolatry. God is love. But that's a part of who he is. When John teaches us about God. He's teaching true truth about a God who exists and is working in the world around us. He is talking about a holy God who knows that some things are sin, but we don't like that. I mean, I had a very strong atheist friend one time. I mean, very committed atheist. And he was shocked that his wife believed in heaven but not hell. How can you do that? This is the atheist telling me this. I mean, you got to believe in both or neither, right? But that's the way our idolatrous minds work. We create God in our own image, or we create an image of God that suits our feelings. And John ends the book by telling them, little children... Stay away from idols. And to stay away from idols, you've got to know the true God. And that's what the scripture is here to teach us. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know, that you would help us to know the truth about you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.